Cheryl Lynn there, got to be real, you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. The fabulous Sally Goldner joins us today and the wonderful Joe Ball from Switchport. Well, yesterday was Transgender Day of Visibility. On the line we have community activist, broadcaster, advocate, legend, Sally Goldner. Sally, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, James. And uh, yeah, um, particularly this week of, of trans visibility, if that is what is um, safe and um, wanted for trans and gender diverse people. I mean, you've been around, you know, as an activist in our community since the 90s. You're a founding member of Transgender Victoria. You're involved in the Bi Alliance. You've got so many wonderful community intersections happening. Did you ever think in the 90s that Trans Day of Visibility would be so visible? No, I didn't. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, think, think back to when. Way back when I came out, you know, 1995, or began to get to a more authentic place, read gender identity and expression. I mean, we didn't have the more solemn event, which was Trans Day of Remembrance, held on the 20th of November, and Trans Day of Visibility um, was first only observed in 2009. And so the direct answer is no. And we needed a day like that. See, Remembrance Day is always going to be needed, but it can be a bit heavy for people. We need it, as I call it, a day like Trans Awesomeness Day. And I think to have the level of visibility to get some positivity um, pumping was really important. Acknowledging, of course, you know, not not everyone can be out as trans. It may not be safe in whatever way. And I think that's something that we do need to consider. In a utopian world, yes, we'd be as visible as we want to be. Reality is maybe we can't. Absolutely. I was looking at the website of a trans organisation today, actually, and there was a quick exit button, which really just conveyed to mm. me just that it's not safe for so many people. Well, yeah, there is the thing. There could be, you know, you know, we could sadly, but reality again, you know, sort of the examples that come up with people, let's say young people and their family of origin or most thereof are not supportive and I feel at this time, you know, we've got, you know, the um, situation, there's many countries in the world, but of course the one that's getting the attention and recently so is Ukraine, where um, LGBTQ in Ukraine are, you know, facing a huge threat to whatever visibility they have. And um, because of the misogynism and violence of Putin and cronies, I won't say Russia, and I think that that's something we need to consider. You know, we're, we're going to remind ourselves that we are relatively fortunate in, we'll say, Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, in relatively high degrees. Absolutely. In Ukraine, of course, we're seeing so many trans people being misgendered and mm. not being able to leave the country. Uh, it truly is tragic. Well, absolutely. You know, there was um, the whole misgendering leads to so many problems on a day-to-day level and I mean that that's one of them that those assigned male are, uh, are still being expected to stay and fight even if they're already affirmed their authentic gender and I mean we haven't spoken for a while in the last two years sadly when there were lockdowns over COVID um, in some countries where you know they had you could go out three days a week for males three days a week for females and no one on the seventh day well where does that leave transgender, diverse and non-binary people, regardless of documentation or gender expression. So it's these sorts of things. Sometimes you can't be visible, but, um, you know, it is nice when we can be and we can, you know, think about, um, you know, that sense of visibility. 
All that considered, we're going into a federal election campaign very shortly. What are some of the policy issues, in your opinion, that the major parties should be running with, or, or all parties for that matter? Well, yes. Wouldn't it be good if we could get a, a cross-partisan approach? I mean, there's so much we could talk about there. There's a few, and there's a few areas and uh, to cover. I mean, I think I'm, you know, there's priorities for most most of the rainbow, including trans and gender diverse. You know, obviously the excessive amount of religious exemptions, particularly students and teachers, which you know cause so much unnecessary pain for trans people, particularly trans students slash young people. Um, two months ago, um, federal laws to outlaw so-called conversion practices would be good, um, backing up any state and territory laws. Something that I think might have been missed. It's a bit technical. I'd like to see an audit of all federal laws to make sure we've got everything LGBTIQA plus cross-reference because, for example, uh, gender identity and sex characteristics as well are not in the Fair Work Act, which could give employers a loophole um, or dodgy employers a loophole at a federal level. Um, Healthcare, you know, recognising LGBTIQA plus a range of things, I mean, it's great that we have awesome women like Brittany Higgins and Grace Tain speaking up so courageously, but I just wonder whether they've considered the needs of queers um, in you know, sexual harassment and a whole range of diversity. And also, I think we need a, a statutory appointment of a federal LGBTIQA plus commissioner, you know, the equivalent of Todd Fernando's role, which exists in Victoria. And then you go through all the things we need for trans and gender diverse, and I mean, there's a huge list, but one which is just way overdue is full coverage um, for out-of-pocket costs. So there are no out-of-pocket costs for any trans person. Another one which would be good is development of uniform standards so we could um, harmonise various laws and regulations across the states and territories. Lots of public education is needed. But also I think there's a couple of, just my last bit, there's a couple of principles that matter to me and that is that there's an increasing sense in the trans community, and I'll also throw in the bi-plus community here, that things need to be led by trans people and trans-specific, say, organisations. There's a frustration that we're being spoken for at times or perhaps not being spoken for or we're not getting what we want to say on board, and the dreaded religious discrimination bill was um, you know, an example of that. And I think it's really important, therefore, that trans leads trans, bi leads bi, and for that matter, intersex leads intersex. Yeah, it's almost as if we need like a trans equality organisation uh, nationally, a big kind of, you know, politically active uh, organisation that makes demands of, of government. I, I Look, I think we need that, um, definitely, and it needs to as I say, be, you know, trans-run, trans-led, um, you know, with allyship from, you know, cisgender people and, and including family members um, as well because there is that feeling, again, it was, you know, it was the rock bottom, but we didn't get, I think, um, the, the whole trans trans students as a wedge um, two months ago, you know, obviously... You know, the, the major part of the responsibility lies with, and I'm just going to call them the Liberal National Party. I'd refuse to call them a government. They're not worthy of the term. But, um, you know, Labor could have been stronger in its support, but a lot of trans people felt, well, had we not been thrown under the bus so much in the postal survey, maybe that precedent wouldn't have been set. 
So we're really, there's a feeling around the trans community of, you know, we need to be um, in charge of our own destiny rather than, you know, people who may not have our interests at heart. So I totally agree with that. There needs to be a coordinated trans-specific body for that matter, a coordinated bi-specific one. And look, we look to the uh, full credit to, of course, um, people of intersex experience where, because they have a national body being Intersex Human Rights Australia and have done that really well. So there's models to look at um, would be really important. I mean, we don't have a minister federally that has mm. LGBTIQA plus in their portfolio. And it's almost as if, you know, we need that, but we also need a minister for gender diversity specifically, don't we? Because it is an emerging community, it's a disadvantaged community, and it's a community that's politically taken advantage of. We need a minister, I think, you know, speaking out. And then, of course, we need more trans people elected to parliament as well. Well, you know, that is the thing. And so how do we get, um, you know, trans people to be willing to run? And, I mean, there is certainly tie-in with the sort of of macho attitudes of parliament that stop probably a range of women running, Um, although, you know, obviously there seems to be a big push from the voices for type of candidates, the vast majority close to all who identifies women, but cis women. And, you know, that's great. I think that I, I think the majority of cis women are huge allies to trans people of all, you know, across the, the kaleidoscope, trans women, trans men, non-binary, agenda. But we do need to have those voices at the top. Um, again, I'm probably using it as the straw case, but it was only by chance that I bumped into two federal Labor MPs at a function prior to that religious discrimination bill. We need to have that access and make sure it's someone who can be there. And I, I think that I'd be honest and say I hadn't thought of a specific mend- um, Minister for Gender Diversity. I think that's a really good idea. Just out of interest, Sally, who were those two Labor MPs and what did you say to them and what did they say to you? Um, ooh, now you put me on the spot. I mean, look, they, they were... Uh, look, I think it's fair enough to say, Mark Dreyfus and Josh Burns, and they said, look, we are aware of the concerns of the trans community and others of, of um, and how much um, concern there are for a whole range of diverse communities and that they will try to do their best. But, again, it should never have come to trans being a wedge. The only positive, but I do want to say, and I do want to shift it to a positive on around this time, is that... A few things have happened that have given me, and it's just a gut instinct, that maybe we are at the extreme tide mark. The fact that five Liberals crossed the floor, the biggest floor crossing in years against the federal government in this country, is huge. And maybe that says that they know at the grassroots trans is not this sort of, um, what is it, um, scare, scare tactic that's worked. And also on a sort of related note, I saw some research in the last week, or when I say, sorry, I should say an opinion poll, that over 80% of parents want gender and sexuality taught in schools. And that's really huge. So I think that, you know, whilst obviously we're always going to have to be, to use the old saying, alert, not alarmed, I'm beginning to think that maybe we have reached that extreme watermark and things are pushing back to a more sensible um, middle ground. Of course, we've got to make sure that we keep that momentum going and that trans and allies do that. And, of course, the critical factor is going to be what happens whenever the election is called, most likely now within, I think it's 50 days, um, will be the latest and um, bring it. (laughs) 
I mean, we do need that infrastructure in place to protect the community and and develop safeguards so that we don't have the importation of these US you know, laws that are targeting trans kids and trans people around sport and around the teaching of gender diversity in schools? Well, that's very true. I mean, they're not really ideas in Australia. I, I know maybe it's a bit of a traditional sort of viewpoint, but I think the majority of Australians do believe in the proverbial fair go and, you know, give your mate a hand up, that sort of thing when they need it and, you know, sort of be there and up for the underdog. And I think these sort of kick people when they're down, ideas that are coming, yes, from, you know, two examples are, of course, the US with all the horrendous tranche of bills at the various state level there. But also, interestingly, the UK, which, you know, we think of as a, in inverted commas, wonderful Western democracy. I did see also a survey that now puts trans hate on the same level as Poland and Hungary, which we think of as these extreme regimes. And so, you know, here are these two so-called, as I say, leading Western democracies where in large part it's coming in, whereas I don't think that's what the, the vast majority, and I'd be willing to say conservatively, two-thirds of Australians want. Um, they want to see, you know, all sorts of children just grow up safely and happily and just get a start in life at achieving their potential. Sally, you mentioned uh, you mentioned basically Medicare before. Just just going back to some policies. Mm. I mean, where do where do trans people stand when it comes to to Medicare rebates? I mean, there must be so many areas, especially around gender reassignment surgery, that need to be addressed, or gender affirmation surgery. Yep. So going back a bit, just before the end of the Rudd Gillard Rudd era, um, we did get some reforms for general medical practices in 2013, which covered things like, let's say, a trans man had a cyst on an ovarian part. There was much done to achieve equality and equity so that a person who needed a surgery or a procedure could get it without going through a whole interrogation about their body and or gender. And then, of course, the government changed and we've been through what we've been through in the last nine years. But it didn't um, sort of put in those trans-specific things like hormones and surge and um, gender affirmation surgery. So the research that we have, and now we now have some accurate figures at least for assigned male people needing surgery, they're out of pocket to the tune of around $16,000 Australian and assigned female uh, for you know top surgery slash breast removal and then there can be others. And if in the few cases where people can afford to add a phallus, I mean if they want to do that, $100,000. I mean, that's just outrageous. Who's got that? Not too many people in our trans communities would have. And so there needs to be public funding of this. So it is a very big one. And it's just, as I say, it's just sort of long overdue. It's been sitting at the top of the sort of cockpit warning flashing list of things we want for too long. And so it, it does need to change. And then it really needs to be a concerted effort. Exactly. And then, of course, when you consider how discriminated against trans people are in employment, and often when they do transition, kind of have to start again on the career ladder, you know, people are finding themselves with a lot of accumulated disadvantage that kind of, you know, perpetuates this cycle of economic disadvantage as well. Absolutely. It is can be very much that downward spiral, so to speak, rather than just, you know, yes, in one sense, you are Getting, wanting to get on with your life and you're, it's much more 
you know, where possible again, where you can be your authentic self and not fight within yourself, that's a good start. But then what happens, as you say, if you can't get the um, opportunities you need, and there just needs to be that, you know, it links in with this idea of a, a something else we want is a national public education strategy in relation to transgender, diverse, non-binary people and issues and families to make sure that people understand just so that we can really, you know, sort of um, put out the... The, the smouldering nonsense that is the, um, you know, the I call them faux issues that are put up, as you say, often that come from overseas, but some, thankfully, you know, a few minority people, politicians, and I won't mention their names, let's not bother with those, um, that they try to, to come on. And I think that we, we, the more we can get past, say, that two-thirds mark, um, the, I, you know, the sort of voices that put these up are just going to sound even more shrill and silly than they do now. Of course, you are an activist with many intersections, and one of them is is being a, a bi trans woman. And of course, you're mm-hmm. doing so much great work in relation to the Bi Alliance Victoria. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Bi Alliance Victoria is a long running um, organisation. We're coming up for our twelfth birthday um, next week. Although we had, there were sort of well, like all queers, we have we have parents and. For a long time, my dear friend and colleague, um, James Dominguez, was running a discussion group for bi people, and that's where the alliance partner um, came in and that we um, brought together the discussion group with some advocacy work that I'd sort of started on, and now we're um, doing that together. And it's, you know, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of, I think, although, of course, the pandemic has been, you know, was there, and, of course, to some extent still is, there's been two wonderful conferences put on by by people around the country being stand by us. And I feel, you know, a lot more solid now. Certainly the first one was the most solid I'd ever felt in my bi identity. And um, there's been good work done. And, um, you know, a plug for there's a few discussion groups now around as well as ours, which usually ha- happens still online at this stage on the fourth Tuesday of the month. And we hope to start doing both an online and and in person, and then we maybe will test a hybrid, see how that goes. But there's also one that is usually um, Sunday afternoon called Boulder for by people who are 40 and older. And that's, I think, a bit of a hidden group in our rainbow. Um, you know, yes, we need to focus on youth and seniors, but that middle cohort for groups like bi and trans, I think, is a bit underserviced. And, you know, what happens after you've come out, say, as a young person and you've turned 25 and you perhaps can't stay in the organisation that is minus 18, what happens? Well, you know, we need that sort of gap for bi and trans, um, being covered by bi and trans people. Um, so I should add that Boulder is having a one-off at three o'clock tomorrow um, for various reasons, um, and you can check them out on Facebook. But this is also a big thing that bi needs specific funding, um, again, by, by people leading bi projects, and clear separate identification of bi in things like policy and research. To give an example of that, a few weeks ago, um, a report was released where um, it said, yes, we have very little funding for trans and intersex, but they totally ignored the fact there's virtually been no bi-specific funding in Australia. So I won't name the organisation because they have agreed to rewrite the report um, because it had only gone out very quickly online. So similar thing there, we need that, but also... I've got to get one thing off my chest, is that 
you know, two things in relation to New South Wales. They are the only jurisdiction in the country whose anti-discrimination law doesn't specifically mention by, and it wasn't included in Alex Greenwich's omnibus that was announced a couple of weeks ago or proposed omnibus of law reforms. But also, Mardi Gras has a very poor history in relation to bi people, and personally, I feel they need to do an apology um, for that before I personally can feel really comfortable about attending that and World Pride, which is, of course, to some extent influenced by Mardi Gras. So there's still, you know, work to go with by a lot of, you know, a lot of there's a lot more positivity, but these are things that we just need to clear up to, you know, put that line under the past. Well, yeah, you know, and it sounds like, you know, bi people really need more of a seat at the LGBTIQA plus policy table and legislative table. Well, absolutely. And this is actually something that I was going to mention as well, that um, in terms of any policy, um, that there's some overriding, overarching principles um, that, you know, our communities are diverse and have diverse needs. There does need to be this principle of, um, you know, nothing about us without us for groups like bi and trans and while it's not my lived experience for people of intersex experience, um, we shouldn't go through what we what I felt happened in the postal server that we don't sell one group out to so another can move forward. And um, obviously intersectionality does need to be considered and that's um, things um, that, you know, of course, parts of my identity such as neuroprocessing and I have three hidden disabilities, but also things beyond my experience acknowledging my privilege, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and people of colour and many, many others. And I think that, um, you know, that, that there just needs to be this understanding that of bi, bi and trans need to speak, um, and, you know, be at the table and be treated with respect, not just sit at the table and then have decisions made by us without our consent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Sally, coming full circle about Trans Day of Visibility, this must have been, yesterday must have been the first Trans Day of Visibility in a while where you were kind of like a bystander and not like participating in like panels. That must have been refreshing to be a social media commentator on it all. Well, it was, yeah. I just, um, I now work for myself um, in terms of paid income from home. And so there I was at the desk um, keeping an eye on the various social media. And it was, as you said, you know, say coming full circle, very, very busy and very visible and a whole range of people with different perspectives. I mean, you know, yes, I have been, had been involved for a long time and um, now, you know, there I was able to sort of chill back a bit and it was great to see, you know, sort of, um, people like like your guest in the next part of the show, uh, or very soon, Joe Ball, you know, a wonderful person under the trans and gender diverse umbrella, um, as CEO of Switchboard, commenting, and you know, sort of there are all sorts of perspectives coming in from you know trans people, say in regional or beyond Metro Melbourne, which is really good because we know there's variations out there in that regard, and that is really that is a very positive thing to see that we are slowly you know, sort of building on the framework that we have and making sure more people are represented um, across the, you know, I call it the, the filling in the dots of the intersection of trans and gender diverse. Yeah, it really is wonderful seeing regional communities like Kyneton and Bendigo uh, embracing their trans community and gender diverse community uh, and taking yeah. steps towards, you know, 
toppling transphobia. A long way to go in regional Victoria, as indeed in metropolitan areas. But that really was wonderful to see. Oh, look, absolutely. I had um, I got up to chill out for the first time, not pandemic or no pandemic, for the first time in a long time. I um, did um, give listeners a repeat of Out of the Pan on Sunday, and it was just a lovely day out there. It's a wonderful community and dimension. Uh, coming up in a few weeks, um, on Saturday the 30th, um, Castle Maine having a Pride event in their botanical gardens. And um, it was announced, I think, on Chill Out Day that there's going to be money for Pride marches in regional cities and towns, which I think is sensational, um, for obviously, for those communities. But for us people, as I call it, in the big smog, we get to get out and get some fresh country air and um, perhaps go up there with them and just see and network and meet which is always awesome. Sally Goldner, it's been an absolute joy to hear your voice on on In Your Face. And, of course, people can catch you every Sunday at noon here on 3CR with Out of the Pan. Sally, it's been wonderful to chat. Thank you so much. Yeah, just two things. Got a very um, exciting crew of guests on Out of the Pan this Sunday from Pacific X. And it's the start. They'll be talking about a new podcast that's going to be part of the show for about three months, which is fantastic, talking diversity. And if I can just um, give one mention in terms of election priorities, um, Just Equal Australia, which I've been doing a small bit of volunteering with, has a survey on election priorities, which is still open, and you can go to equal.org.au and click on the banner on the front page and do that. And there's all, as well as the general stuff, there's specific sections on ACE, by trans, intercepts, so that, um, which will be, you know, if ace, bi, trans, intersex people respond, that will be given waiting. So um, really a good possibility so we can really make sure we can, you know, when the election is fully called, we can really hammer all candidates and parties to make sure they commit to supporting equality and equity. Absolutely. Sally Goldner, thanks for your insights. Always great to chat. Good one, James, and thanks for your great work on air. The awesome Sally Goldner there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. And here's Natalie in Bruglia. I thought I saw a man brought to life. He was warm, he came around like he was dignified. Show me what it was to cry Well, you couldn't be that man I adore You don't seem to know, seem to care What your heart is for Well, I don't know him anymore There's nothing where he used to lie The conversation has one
in America, you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, and here's You Am I.
with shame and stress. Ignore this and you repeat the past. Better achievements, better believe in that. Kick this habit that's gonna claim your death. Down on your knees, ask for forgiveness. Here's the sound of your petty pens. Better achievements, better believe in featuring Kinney and Dam. You are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. Well, this week, the federal government handed down its election sweetener budget. On the line, we have Joe Ball, who is the CEO of Switchboard Victoria. Joe, welcome back to the show. Thanks, James. It's always good to be here. Joe, how did LGBTIQA plus mental health funding fare in the budget? Oh, look, James, I think the way I look at it is that what happened was expected, but it's certainly not acceptable. Um, you know, uh, for LGBTIQA plus people, the context is that we are overrepresented in poor mental health, in suicide and family violence. 
So you'd expect as a, pro- as a priority population um, that we would actually be considered uh, a, you know, a key part of the budget if you wanted to work towards addressing mental health and zero suicide in this country. But as I said, um, it was expected, but it was unacceptable that we were not named in the budget. We were not called out as a priority population. Um, there was a lot of funding of exactly the same services that they always fund, so Headspace, Lifeline, um, and that kind of major mainstream service, but there was no actual carved-off specific targeted funding for community-led and controlled responses. So this is a huge failing of LGBTIQA plus policy from the, from the Morrison government and a huge failing of service provision funding federally. Yeah, I'd, I'd characterise it that way. I mean, I think, you know, I do welcome that the, you know, the Morrison government has set up a suicide prevention office and I do welcome that the government has had for now going on two years a focus on reducing suicide in this country. So people might know that about eight people take their life and die from suicide every day in Australia. That's extremely high. And so you would expect the government to be focusing on suicide prevention. However, if you wanted to get to what the government has set, the Morrison government has set to a target of zero suicide, is that you would need to not be just doing the same things you've always done and expecting a different outcome. And that's what we've seen in this budget. And also, if you want to reduce suicide, you have to look at the instances where it's occurring and focus on the communities where there's over-representation. And for LGBTIQA plus people, tragically, we are over-represented in, in suicide prevention. So if this government wants to get to zero, wants to really make a dent um, in, in turning those numbers down, as we all should be interested in that, then it actually needs to fund an LGBTIQA plus targeted national strategy. So, Joe, just to get technical, how much more funding is needed? I mean, how long's a piece of string, I guess? Yeah, look, I, I think that's true. And, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to put an exact sort of budgetary response on it, but I guess if I was going to say something, so at a conservative estimate based on Private Lives 3 survey and the Black Dogs Institute research, between 10 to 15% of suicide attempts in Australia are LGBTIQA plus people. So, um, and I, I don't I'll let that sit for a moment. That is so awful that, you know, 10 to 15%, which means for us as members of our community is that we, most of us know someone. Um, that's how horrific those numbers are. Most of us have lost someone to suicide. Um, but if you think about the 10 to 15% of all attempts are that, we would expect between 10 to 15% of the funding that comes out of the government is given to our communities. But what's the amount we've got in this budget? Zero. So, yeah, that's I'm, what I would say about to what we should give. And, I mean, it just makes me draw my breath and just go, my gosh, you know, because, I mean, I guess there's also shortfalls in other areas of LGBTIQ mental health uh, funding as well. Uh, it sounds like it's across the board, yeah? It is. There's no calling out of our communities anywhere. So there was, um, you know, uh, there was a budget that was looking at family violence um, that is in there. Again, they don't call, they talk about giving money to our watch, which we, which we welcome the National Prevention Service, um, National Prevention uh, Organization, our watch. And in that, they say that some of that money, um, needs to go towards, go toward LGBTIQA plus 
specific specific prevention work. So that's the only time we were named, which was in basically research and prevention activities. But we know at Switchboard, who run the Rainbow Door, we have a front-facing crisis service. Actually, we need funding for that response as well as not just prevention campaigns, which are really important, but actually uh, response um, and recovery. And there's none of that in there for our communities. And I'd say that it's a bit generous of me to say that that our watch funding is significant for us. I think it is something. Um, and I welcome funding on prevention activities, and I think our watch is a fantastic organisation. But I don't think we should get too excited that we've had been named um, with no kind of financial amount put to it and only in prevention, not in response. I mean, this feels like another political attack by the Morrison government, not a legislative attack, but a, an attack by financial neglect and policy neglect. Well, I mean, it's a continuation, isn't it? Like, I don't see that they've, they've never given money before um, of, of, you know, there's, uh, there might be sort of uh, government initiatives or grants opportunities, but I've never seen a, from this government a significant contribution to actually tackling the LGBTIQA plus community. And most importantly, when I say tackling it, what I mean is actually building the sector that's what we need to do. We need to build the LGBTIQA plus sector out. We're one of the most underfunded um, service sectors in this country. Um, yes, we are overrepresented in some of the key, you know, of the mental health, um, the suicide prevention and the family violence, what I talked about, and aged care. Um, yet we, we have a very small sector with very small organisations. I mean, I want to see what I would want to see at our budget, out of this budget is that direct funding into our community organisations, uh, funding for workforce, uh, funding for capacity building and funding for service delivery. And there's, there's none there. And this really, you know, sheets home, you know, pushes home the point that we don't have a minister whose portfolio takes in our community. We don't have a, an LGBTIQA plus issues minister. And I think if we did, we would have a seat at the budget table when the departments and the, and the ministers are kind of, you know, formulating the budget. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think that those kind of mechanisms can be really useful. I mean, we do have that in Victoria and we've seen the benefits of that with Martin Foley, Minister Martin Foley, holding both the health portfolio and the equality portfolio. And I think that's that has been really useful. Um, I, I mean, I would welcome an equality minister at the federal level. However, I think... You know, these are kind of uh, technical fixes, if you like, when I actually think there's an ideological issue going on with this government that doesn't see, in the face of overwhelming evidence, um, that we need a priority response. It doesn't see that it needs to actually give us a targeted priority funding. Well, that's right. I mean, they're pushing legislation, let's name it, the Religious Discrimination Bill, that will enable, you know, service providers to discriminate against our community. So I guess if you take that line of thinking a step further, they would be thinking, well, why should we fund it? Yeah, I mean, I think think that's a really great point you think that you've come up with there, James. And I think that's something we've got to keep in mind is it's not just that we're arguing for money to fix I guess, ongoing issues, we're actually having to combat this, this institutional um, discrimination. And I think that, you know, like for me, the religious discrimination record, and I think I've actually been on record on saying on this on your very show, but the religious discrimination um, legislation, you know, that drives suicide. That doesn't prevent it. 
and we need policies and, and responses that actually prevent uh, suicide, that uh, tackle and you know mental health, and that prevent family violence, not policies that drive it. Yes, family violence uh, prevention funding is a huge shortfall uh, for our community, isn't it, at the federal level in particular? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, at, at Rainbow Door, you know, we, we advocate at the state level um, all the time. And I think, you know, it, it's, we've got an ear in Victoria, but if you think about the national issue, I'm very concerned about what happens outside of Victoria um, around family violence. There's no other service like Rainbow Door nationally, uh, it, which Rainbow Door has that dedicated family violence response and we have family violence workers who work on that service. And there just isn't another kind of intake like that and phone service anywhere else. And I think that it shouldn't matter which state you're in to be able to get this. It shouldn't be this level of inequality between states um, because there's LGBTIQA plus people. We're not just living in Victoria. We're living in regional areas. We're living in every state and territory. And I think that there's a lot of lessons around the Family Violence Royal Commission that did actually, in Victoria, that did take up um, LGBTIQA plus issues, there's a lot of lessons, I think, that happened in Victoria that be, could be taken nationally. You mentioned Out and About, which is a wonderful service that Switchboard runs for queer seniors. How did LGBTIQ seniors fare in the budget? You know, I think that um, what's... There's, well, look, there's, there, this government's response to the... Uh, Age Care Royal Commission is was despicable, full stop, right, for every older person. They have not given a real commitment to, to um, fund the recommendations out of the Age Care Royal Commission. So full stop, that's an issue for every um, older person. It should be an issue for every single person because hopefully all of us are going to get older and many of us have older people that we love. So we should be very interested in the recommendations of the, of the Age Care Royal Commission. But even, and, and so it was bad for aged care, full stop. And then, of course, there was absolute silence when it came to us. On the flip side, however, um, if people have been following closely, I'm not sure how closely everyone's been following the, um, the budget, but, but, you know, the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, has done an aged care response. And I think that that is quite hopeful, if you listen to it, like he's talking about building up the workforce, he's talking about increasing payments for aged care workers, he's talking about putting a nurse in every aged care facility um, in Australia, and I think that's great policy. However, okay, so that's that's a good policy. However, there isn't a mention of the LGBTI aged care standards. Like, that's something we would like. A lot of work has been done to talk about how we need to have, like, culturally competent LGBTI responses in aged care. And I think that that's not part of the opposition's response. We probably wouldn't expect it, um, but I'd certainly would have wanted to see some kind of mention of us as a priority population somewhere in, in his response. It would have been lovely if it was in aged care because, as you know, James, I'm really passionate about the conditions our older people face in aged care. And I would have loved to see the ALP um, make a commitment to increase 
to significantly and meaningfully increase the funding for the Community Visitor Program, which is what our service is part of. Um, the Out and About Program is funded through the Community Visitor Scheme. And I would love... like It's such an underfunded service. We support 95 older people who live in aged care or in receipt of a home care package. It would have been amazing to see them just fund that whole scheme, not just ours, but community visit the 400 community visitor schemes that exist um, across Australia. When I mean fund, I mean make a meaningful commitment to increase the funding for it. I would have loved to have seen that come out of the ALP. It is a recommendation of the Royal Commission. Um, yeah, so that's something, you know, that I'm, you know, a bit, I'm a bit happy with ALP's response. Um, I think there's good things in there about their aged care. They didn't make us a priority population, um, and I would have liked to have seen the CVS funding increase. So that's my comment about that. But this really shows, doesn't it, that the budget isn't enough for our community and that during the election campaign, when it officially gets rolling, that the parties need to be making some pretty substantial policy announcements in relation to the health and wellbeing of our community. Look, you know, I'd welcome any kind of meetings with either side of the you know, political aisles have conversations about um, how they could fund our communities uh, and make and and you know make good on us being not just named as a priority population in policy documents, but actually putting some funding commitments to that. Um, I mean, obviously, I want to have that conversation with both sides. We don't know what's going to happen at the election, and I would like to see any future government um, of either persuasion make commitments to our community. And I and I guess I would like put out an invitation to politicians to come and visit the Victorian Pride Centre and, and have these conversations. I would welcome conversations alongside my colleagues about um, transgender rights, uh, aged care, family violence, suicide prevention and mental health. I, you know, I, I think that uh, it would be great for politicians to come and hear about what our concerns are and start to make some commitments. Finally, Joe, if people need to contact Switchboard, especially after listening to the issues that we've raised, how can they go about it? That's such a great point. We should do that. And I was just going to look up the Rainbow Door number. But, of course, people can contact QLife, which Switchboard is a part of, because uh, people are listening around the country on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thank you, James. Thanks for getting that. I was like, I wanted to give people, that's right, you can call Q Life, which is open from 3pm to midnight tonight. But I also want to share the Rainbow Door phone number that's open seven days a week and it's open from 10am to 5pm. And you can talk to us on 1-800-729-367 or text us on 0480-017-246 or write to us on support at rainbowdoor.org.au. So that's Two, two different helplines, and you can check out our out and about service by going to our um, the our website on www.switchboard.org.au. Joe Ball, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Thank you so much. No worries, always, James. I love it. The wonderful Joe Ball there. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. We will catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. 
To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.